just by way of reminder, as we study the book of 1 Samuel, we're studying the book of, does anyone remember? 1 Samuel is the book of leadership. Boom. Good job. 1 Samuel is the book of leadership. Why? Well, because leadership is so important for us as as Christians, and it's so important in our society. Listen, leaders are are everywhere, and chances are every single one of you will at some point in your life have some position or title of leadership. And so as a result, I'm so grateful to God that he's included uh, a book in the Bible here in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, that deals very much with leadership. We're studying three main characters. The first one is Samuel after whom the book is titled. The second is Saul. We'll be getting there in a few weeks. And the third person that we'll be studying in the book of 1 Samuel is David. Boom. And he's actually the most notable person in the book of 1 Samuel. You'd think it would be Samuel. Um, but over First and Second Samuel, the most talked about person is David. In fact, David is the most talked about person in the Bible besides Jesus. But as we study the book of 1 Samuel, we're really seeing what it means to be a godly leader. And today is no different. A quick recap of last week. Last week's message, what we learned, can be summed up in reading verses 1 and verse 21. Verse 1 says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. But verse 21 concludes the chapter with, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, as you well remember, we have this man that's the the high priest over Israel at this time. His name's Eli, and he's a terrible, inept uh, priest. He's doing a very bad job, and he has really run Israel, so to speak, into the ground. He has two sons. Uh, whom the Bible calls worthless men. Hophni and Phinehas calls them worthless men. Why? Because they didn't know God. You remember Hophni and Phinehas were, they would steal the sacrifice from the people. The people would come to give their sacrifices to God. And Hophni and Phinehas, these priests, would then steal the sacrifice rather than uh, burning it as an offering to the Lord. Additionally, uh, not only were they doing that, but The Bible even says there in chapter 2 that Hophni and Phinehas were uh, sleeping with people, with worshipers. Uh, They'd come to church, so to speak, and here's Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, and they're sleeping with the worshipers. Um, As Jeremy pointed out, uh, some scholars even think that they could have possibly actually started a a prostitution ring uh, there in the tabernacle, um, there in, in church so to speak. Worthless, worthless men who didn't know God and blasphemed him. And so Israel was in a really dark time, and we saw last week Samuel be called by the Lord. Samuel, God calls Samuel, and uh, you remember he runs to Eli uh, over and over and over again, and Eli tells him to go back to sleep, and finally Eli gets the picture and realizes that it's the Lord. This was strange because in that time, you remember, as I read in verse 1, The word of the Lord was rare. God didn't speak in that time. It was a dark, dark, dark time for Israel, and God never really spoke to them. He wasn't really close to them because they had far removed themselves from God. But God raises up Samuel to be a prophet. We read there in verse 1 that the word of the Lord was rare, and then in verse 21 we see that now Samuel is established as a prophet of Israel. He would be, as we're studying for Samuel, you remember, a man after God's word. A man after God's word. Samuel is a man who loved God's word. Not only did he listen to it, not only did he obey it, but he communicated God's word. And that's what we see uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. But before we read it, uh, pray with me one more time. Father, we just give this study into your hands. I pray that Uh, anything that I could say uh, that's of me, I pray it would fall on deaf ears, but that your word would penetrate our hearts, that it would transform our lives, and it would cause us to love you so much more, to love others as we love ourselves, to chase after you, and to obey you, God. 
I lift this up in your precious son's name. Amen. First Samuel chapter four, verse one. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. We'll pause right there. Verse one, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. This is included, the chapter starts out with this sentence for a couple of reasons. The first one is to remind us that Samuel is now established as a prophet over Israel, and everyone recognizes him as that. We saw that there at the end of chapter 3, but also to remind us of of why what's about to happen is going to happen. Uh, Let me explain. It says that the word of Samuel went out to all of Israel. Well, what's that word? What's that word? Well, God came to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And you remember God said in verse 10. uh, Sorry, I'm going to jump down actually to verse 11. My bad. God says to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. God says, I'm about to do something that everyone who hears it, it'll cause their two ears to tingle. In other words, it'll cause them to kind of drop their mouths in amazement and be completely bewildered with nothing to say. They won't have anything to to respond to what they hear God's about to do. And that word of, of Samuel, God telling Samuel, hey, I'm about to do something radical. Samuel then goes and tells all of Israel. What does he tell them? Well, God tells Samuel, I'm about to fulfill against the house of Eli all that I said I was going to do. What is that? Well, in chapter 2, verses 27 to 36, well, wait, yeah, verse 27 to 36, we have this long curse pronounced against Eli and against his whole house. Ultimately, that he would completely wipe them out because they were worthless. We already talked about that. Eli was inept. He let his sons run around and do whatever they wanted. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were completely worthless, wicked men who didn't honor God and used the church uh, to make a profit and to please themselves. And so God told Samuel, I'm going to wipe out Eli and his whole house. And Samuel goes and now tells all of Israel this word in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. So we have drawn up here a line in the sand, sort of the Philistines against Israel. Now, this isn't the first time uh, that we've come encounter with the Philistines, right? In fact, we saw them quite a few times in the book of Judges. They've always kind of been an enemy of Israel, and the Philistines will play an, an extremely important role throughout all of First and even Second Samuel as sort of the, the arch nemesis of Israel. Understand there was a great move happening in the land of Israel in this time. Uh, All the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, have come in and they're occupying uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan, right? Pretty much, uh, if so if this is the promised land, imagine that the promised land is kind of in front of me here. Uh, You have the Mediterranean Sea here to the west and you have the Jordan River, pardon me, the Mediterranean Sea to the east and... uh, no. Wait. Gosh, dang it. No, 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 no. Yeah, it is. It's the Mediterranean Sea to the west. I was right before. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea to the west here, and you have the Jordan River to the east. And the promised land, the land of Canaan, sits right in the middle. Okay, the children of Israel have occupied the land uh, sort of between the center of that division there and all the way up into the Jordan River. And the Philistines have come in right at about the same time, and they've begun to occupy all the land in the land of Canaan that's right along the coastal uh, line of the Mediterranean Sea. So they have a lot of coastal cities. They have five uh, main cities there. And the children of Israel are occupying, trying to occupy the same land at the same time. So you have two major 
civilizations that are trying to occupy the same land. You have the Philistines who are a, a pagan society. They worship a, a ton of gods, uh, and they, they have some really disgusting worship practices. And then you have the children of Israel who are commissioned by God to go in and, and inhabit this land. And they're under God's promise. God had promised them that, that he would give them this land and that he would subdue their enemies before them, Right? And so you have these two epic sort of superpowers in the Transjordanian region, and they're coming up to battle. The Philistines are camped at Aphek, and the children of Israel are camped at Ebenezer. And there's about to be a great, huge battle that would happen. Now, based on you know, all that God had promised the, the children of Israel, you would think that you would know what would happen, uh, but you might be very wrong. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? We'll pause right there. So you have Israel that's very confident uh, very sure of themselves, very very sure of what's going to happen because they're, they're under God's promise of provision that he's going to give them the, this land of Canaan, the, the promised land, that he's going to subdue their enemies before them and they come up against the Philistine army and they get their tails whipped. 4,000 men die. 4,000 of the Israeli men die there on the field of battle that day. Such a tragic thing that's happened. And the elders of Israel sort of come together and they ask this question. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? This is truly the the crucial, the essential question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The elders of Israel recognize something very important. Uh, And if you're you're taking note, uh, write this down. Nothing happens without passing through the hand of God. Nothing happens without passing through the hand of God. Not only to the children of Israel in that day, but listen, Christian, in your life today, nothing happens without passing through the hand of God. Everything that happens in your life is purposed, uh, intended, planned to happen by God. The elders of Israel recognized something very significant, very important, that this was not a success of the Philistines, but rather uh, a delivering uh, of Israel by God. So this wasn't the, the, the Philistines' power that was happening here, but the, the elders of Israel recognized that this had everything to do with God's power, with God's power. They come together, why has this great thing happened? Now listen, like I said, this is not the first time we've seen the Philistines, uh, and this isn't the first time that the children of Israel have lost, okay? This isn't the first time that the children of Israel, that their existence as a nation has been severely threatened. In fact, for the last about 200 years, uh, that's been going on throughout the whole book of Judges, You remember the book of Judges is the book of cycles. Why? Because the same thing kept happening over and over and over and over again. Twelve times the children of Israel would turn their backs on God. And as a result, God would raise up another nation. And more than once, that was the Philistines, to sort of subdue, to defeat, and to enslave the children of Israel and oppress them. Well, as a result, the children of Israel would then cry out to God and, and he would send a judge to sort of liberate the children of Israel, to free them. And uh, they, would, they would worship God for pretty much as long as that judge lived. And then once that judge died, they would turn their backs on God. And the cycle would, would repeat itself. Twelve times the children of Israel turned their back on God. And for many, many, many long extended periods of time throughout those 200 years, the children of Israel were in bondage to one country or another, to one nation or another. This isn't the first time that the children of Israel have lost. But every time before this, they recognized what it was and they returned to God. They repented. They ran back to him. 
Every time they lost, every time the question was asked, why has this thing happened to us? Why has God deserted us? They recognized, they realized it was their own sin, and they cried out to God, repented, and he came in and saved the day. But something very interesting happens this time around. Rather than them recognizing, asking the question, why has God done this? Rather than saying, well, gosh, we we need to repent, we need to run back to him. He hasn't really deserted us. We've deserted him. We've left his, his protection. We've walked away from him. We're outside of his plan for our lives, and we've gotten bit hard. And so we need to run back to him. Rather than that, let's see what the children of Israel say. Continuing on in verse 3, they say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of of our enemies. This is what the children, the elders of Israel suggest. They ask themselves, why has God done this? Why has he not uh, given us over, or why has he not given us the Philistines, but rather given us over to the Philistines in battle? Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines today? I know. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it before us so that we'll have victory, so that we'll win in battle. The children of Israel were doing something that we so often do as Christians today. We call upon and and try to harness the power of God while trying to remove ourselves from God. Right? They're, They're not walking with God. They're not close to him. They're not in relationship with him. They're far from him. The word of the Lord here in this time is very sparse. It's not common. It's not happening. They're far from God as a people. And so what do they do? They try and grab some icon and they drag it in as if it's like a piece of magic. And uh, like this Ark of the Covenant uh, is going to, to save them. It's going to deliver them. It's so funny to me uh, that this is what's happening because that's sort of what happened. You remember uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's, that was like the Nazis' plan in that movie too. Uh, let's get the, the Ark and let's you know, get it on our side and let's get it to the front lines because if we do that, we'll have limitless power. And listen, we as Christians, we do that in our own lives. Rather than drawing near to God, getting close to Him, living our life in him, living our life for him, living our life in whatever way he would have us live. We try and do our own thing in our own way, but we still try and take the the power of God with us. We do that in, in prayer. We do that in prayer. It reminds me of a, of a story, um, that this woman, she, uh, she went to the, uh, a doctor's appointment that she had. It was a routine checkup. And she goes in, and the doctor takes forever uh, to even come in and see her. She's sitting there in the, in the doctor's office for well over an hour. I'm sure you know what that's like. Uh, it's awful. I hate that. Uh, but she's sitting there waiting for the doctor to come in and even see her. And she comes in and gets her routine checkup. And the lab results take exceptionally long. And she still has to go pick up her prescription from the pharmacy. And she's late to go pick up the kids from the babysitter and take her daughter to dance recital and her son to soccer practice. And she still has to stop by the store before all that happens. And so she's stressed out and she's driving around circling the parking lot in Walmart when all of a sudden the rain uh, starts pouring down. And, uh, and so she's just in, in desperation. And she says, you know, God, you know what, you know how bad a day uh, I've been having. And so if you could just give me, uh, you know, like the best parking spot. Uh, that would be so awesome. I just, I just, I need that. It, it's raining. I, I just, I need a, something ha- good to happen in my day. When all of a sudden she looked up and she saw the, the backup lights from a car in the very front, right by the store, right next to the, to the handicap spots and someone's pulling out. And so she, she races up there and she's so excited and she, she starts to whip into the parking spot and she says, never mind, Lord, something opened up. Listen, 
so often we, we kind of do the same thing in prayer. Not only, uh, and listen, I'm not saying that, that praying for a parking spot is necessarily a bad thing. Um, I do that once in a while. Um, but, uh, but this is what I'm saying, that, that so often we cheapen prayer. We cheapen prayer. And we try and use prayer as some magical means for us to get whatever we want, like God's a genie. Uh, like he's just ready to grant our every wish. And if we just pray, uh, then he'll give it to us. And I really want a promotion at work. And so I'm just going to pray for that uh, because uh, I just want God's power uh, to come in and do whatever I want. Or I want this or that, or, or it, maybe it's not even so selfish, but you want something for, something, for someone else. And Rather than relying on God, rather than going to him, rather than seeking his opinion, seeking his face about something, we try and just jack God's power. We try and use God as, as a genie. And that's what Israel's doing here. They're, they're parading the ark into the, the front lines of battle like it's a genie's lamp. Hoping that once they get, to the, once they get it to the front lines, somehow... Uh, they're going to win in battle against the Philistines. Let's see what happens. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So here come Hophni and Phinehas, these two worthless men uh, with the ark on their shoulders, and they're coming down, and they're running up uh, to the front lines of battle, right? Now, we already know that these guys are, are not guys who, who love God. They're not guys who are there to serve God. Uh, they're there to get the fringe benefits of that. They're there to get attention, to get fame. Uh, people will do whatever, uh, they, whatever Hophni and Phinehas will want. Uh, and so they're, they're very selfish people. They're very wicked and worthless men, right? And so verse 5, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. I imagine Hophni and Phinehas are sort of running in with the Ark on their shoulders, and they're just sort of like waving, and you know, it's like this big parade for them, and everyone's cheering, and it's this big great thing for them, uh, the priests, as they're walking in uh, with, with the Ark of the Covenant. And all of Israel is cheering, they're roaring, they're excited. The Ark is here, the Ark is here, everything's going to be great. But Israel's still far from God. Yeah, sure, the Ark's there, right? The Ark of the Covenant, and and the narrator takes special care to say that it's the Ark of the Lord of Hosts, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim are these two angels uh, that are on the lid, right? And their wings are almost touching. And that's called the mercy seat. And it's said that that's sort of like God's throne. He sits enthroned there on the cherubim. This is such a holy, such a special thing, such a, a set-apart thing. But the children of Israel want nothing to do with God. They want everything to do with what He can give them. They want nothing to do with obeying Him. They want nothing to do with, with being close to Him. They want nothing to do with worshiping Him. They want nothing to do with hearing His Word. They just want what He can give them. And so Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark into the camp of Israel. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? There are the gods, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp of, of Israel, and everyone's cheering, and they're cheering so loud that the ground shakes. 
and the Philistines are kind of looking over and they're like, what on earth is going on? What do they have to be so excited about? We just had a battle and we whooped their tail. We killed 4,000 of their men. What do they have to be excited about? And then they find out one of their scouts, you know, kind of comes back and, and they, report, they report to the whole camp and it sort of spreads throughout all the Philistine encampment that a God has come into the camp of, of the Israelites. And now the Philistines are shaking in their boots. They're terrified. Why? Because they've heard what this God has done. The most mighty nation in the entire known world at this point, Egypt, was brought to their knees by this God. What can the Philistines possibly do uh, to stand up to a God like this? And, and they're saying, we're, we're toast. Man, we are so messed. We, we, are, we might as well just throw in the towel. I mean, nothing like this has ever happened before. We've never gone up against a God like this or gods. They weren't kind of sure which it was. If it was one God or many gods, they were a little confused on that. But whatever the case, they knew that the God of Israel was powerful. They knew that he had a lot to bring to the table. He swung a big bat, so to speak, and they were scared, and rightly so. So you have the children of Israel who are now very confident in What's about to happen? They've now got God on their side. God's got their back. The ark is in the, in the camp. The ark's in the house. And the Philistines are now extremely unconfident. They're extremely scared. They're afraid. Why? Because they know what that means. And so what happens? You would imagine that with an extremely confident Israel and an extremely unconfident uh, Philistine army, I'm sure you can develop in your head what what you might think would happen. But the Philistines reply with this. In verse 10. Verse 9, I'm sorry. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now the Philistines are incredibly brave or incredibly stupid. One of the two. Um, Because they now realize that this great God or God's Uh, from their perspective, have come into the camp of Israel. They realize that this God has brought Egypt to its knees. And rather than throwing in the towel, rather than surrendering, rather than waving the white flag and saying, can't we all just get along? The Philistines say, no. Be men, be of courage, let's go fight. Because we're not going out without a fight. We're not going down like like punks, okay? We're going to go fight. Even if all of us die, we're going to be men and we're going to go fight. And so you have either very brave or very stupid Philistines that now charge the children of Israel, who are, by the way, again, you remember, very confident uh, in now their, their prowess uh, because they have God on their side. The, the ark is, is in the house. And so what happens? Verse 10, So the Philistines fought, And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. As if it couldn't get any worse, verse 11 goes on, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So what happens? The children of Israel are energized. They're stoked. Why? Because they've checked, they've got the the box, God's box in their camp, right? They're good to go. They're going to have a great victory that happens that day. They've got the box. But what happens? Well, it turns out that the Philistines are more brave than stupid. And they come in and they kill 30,000 now. It started with 4,000 men, the first battle, you remember. Well, now we're adding insult to injury as the Philistines come in and kill 30,000 Israeli men. 30,000 of them die on the field of battle and the whole rest of the army turns tail and runs home. They book it. They're out of there. Forget it, okay? 
Uh, I just watched every single person uh, who I ever knew die. And on top of that, I'm pretty sure I saw the ark get captured. Listen, as Christians, we can do the same thing sometimes. Rather than taking a box into the camp, uh, we check off our boxes, so to speak. We have our read your Bible box, and your pray before meals box, and your attend church twice a week box, and your go to the upper room box. And you have all these spiritual boxes that you check off. And you assume, we assume as Christians sometimes that, that if we have all of our boxes checked, that everything's going to be great and we're going to have great victory. But God's not interested in religion. He's not interested in the children of Israel uh, bringing a box into the camp. Yeah, sure, this box was a symbol of the promise uh, that God had made to the children of Israel. It was a symbol, right? And there was great glory and, and mysticism that surrounded this box wasn't just any old box. But God wasn't interested in where they brought the box, okay? He was interested in where their heart was. In the same way, Christian, in life, we, we go up against tons of battles. Every single day, there's, there's battles. Whether it's battles against sin, uh, whether it's battles to really trust in God to put your faith in Him, to believe in Him, to know that, that He is going to do what He's promised that He's going to do. Whether it's to, to stay strong, whatever it is, we face many battles in life. But listen, Christian, don't be fooled into thinking that if you have all your boxes checked, if you brought the box into the camp, so to speak, that everything's going to be great. Because God's not concerned with your religiosity. He's not concerned with my Christian to-do list. He wants to know where my heart's at. He wants to know where I'm at. He wants me living in obedience to Him, spending time with Him, being close to Him. And then when battles happen, he's absolutely going to give me victory in life. Not because I'm going out to, to, to be victorious and I've got my Christian boxes checked. But because I love him, because I'm close to him, and he loves to take care of and protect his kids. But Israel, again, remember their heart is far from God. Their heart is far from God. But listen, another very important thing is going on here. As I said, in verse 1, in verse 1, it says that the, the word of Samuel went to all of Israel, right? The word of Samuel went to all of Israel. And what was that word? It was that God was going to bring judgment on the house of Eli. That Eli and his two sons were going to be killed and that there would be no sacrifice that could atone for what they've done because of how wicked they've been. And so verse 1 says, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel to explain to us why what was about to happen was going to happen. Why did this great tragedy happen? Why was the ark captured? Why was 30,000 of, of the children of Israel slaughtered? The answer is at the, the end of verse 11. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That was why. Why did the ark need to be brought into the picture? Why did the ark have to go out? And it's so that God could get Hophni and Phinehas down to the front lines of the field of battle so that he could fulfill what he said was going to happen. These two wicked men, they come down uh, with the ark thinking that they're invincible because they've got God on their side. And God says, you've never once uh, done anything in obedience to me, out of love for me. What makes you think I would ever be on your side? And he kills them. They die there on the field of battle, and the ark is captured. Man, this is pretty dark times for the children of Israel. 
So what happens next? Verse 12. A man of Benjamin from, ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. It's interesting that Eli's heart is not trembling for his two sons. He's, his heart is not trembling for uh, Hophni and Phinehas. He's not worried about them. Why? Uh, because he knows that they're wicked, wicked, wicked kids. And we saw in the previous chapter when Samuel came to Eli and he he told Eli what God, what God said to him, that, that God was going to wipe out uh, Eli and his two sons. Eli's response was, it's God, whatever seems best to him, let him do it. And so Eli's not sitting around looking uh, off into the distance with his heart trembling for his two sons, uh, but his heart is trembling uh, for the ark. He's afraid for what's going to happen to the ark because he knows, I think, in his heart what's going to happen to his two kids. I imagine that uh, when the word came to, uh, to bring the ark down and Hophni and Phinehas are very excited to uh, let everyone see them carrying the ark. And I mean, when you're that close to, to something so powerful, I'm sure it's a total chick magnet circa 4000 BC, you know? I'm sure that they were just stoked to, to have everyone see this so that they could be a sort of Israel idol. Um, instead of American idol, they'd be Israel idol. And everyone would know their face and know who they were, and they were just stoked to do that. I imagine Eli, though, was very reluctant to let them take the Ark of the Covenant down. And so he's sitting on a stool, looking down the road, with his heart trembling for the Ark of the Covenant. Continuing on through verse 13, it says, And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Do you sense the irony in what's going on here? We talked about last last week uh, in chapter 3, how Eli's eyes uh, were fading. They were dimming. And the narrator here in 1 Samuel made special attention to say that there was no vision in the land. And then it says that Eli's sight was dimming. So it's not so much that Eli was just, you know, going blind uh, physically, but he was going blind spiritually. He was morally blind, so to speak. And so now we have here in verse 15, it's told that his eyes were fixed so that he could not see. So now he's gone completely blind. So now we have this feeble, old man who's completely blind, but he's trying to look down the road looking for the ark. Man, it's such a a picture of the whole people of Israel. They were totally morally, spiritually blind. Their hearts trembling for the ark of God. Why? Again, not because they wanted to be close to God, but they just wanted what he could give them. So what happens? The man comes and he's, he's given this bad news. I imagine if you looked at him, I mean, it says that his clothes are torn and he's like covered in dust. He looks like a harbinger of bad news. He looks like a bearer of bad news. Not the kind of guy you want to hear from. Okay, if somebody came in uh, and they were just, their clothes were all torn up and they were just covered in dirt, I, I probably wouldn't want to hear what they have to say. I would imagine that they would say something like, um, aliens have taken over the world, you know? I mean, like someone who comes in looking like that, they have to be bringing bad news. And so the man comes to Eli, and he's now gone through the whole town, and he's told all of them what's happened, and everyone is crying out. And Eli says, what's going on? Someone tell me what's happening. 
So the man comes, and in verse 16, the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from the battle today. I imagine he's so distraught and uh, probably panting for breath. He's just run about 20 miles, um, almost a marathon. He's just run. And, uh, and so he's just kind of you know, trying to struggle out what needs to be said, and he's sort of repeating himself needlessly. Uh, I just fled from battle. I'm the guy who just ran away from the, from the battle. It just, I just got here from the battle. I ran away. And Eli asks a very foolish question in, uh, there at the end of verse 16. He says, How did it go, my son? Eli asks how it went, as if he needed to even ask. This guy's panting. He just said that he fled from battle. He just run away from the battlefield. And Eli says, how did it go? Tell me what happened. I imagine he's hoping, uh, or rather holding on to one last ounce of hope that maybe everything was all right. The man responds in verse 17. He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. Well, that's not good. That's terrible news. Israel's fled before the Philistines. They're running with the t- their tail between their legs. That, that's not good news at all. But it only gets worse. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. A better way to put that or a, or a more apt way to phrase that is to say that uh, that there's been a great slaughter. A lot of people are dead. There's been a great defeat among the people. So not only is everyone running away, but a bunch of people are dead. As if that wasn't bad enough, it only gets worse for Eli. He goes on to say, your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Your sons, yeah, your boys that you raised up, uh, both of them are dead. Man, it couldn't get any worse for old Eli. But then the man finishes and says, and the ark of God has been captured. It's interesting to me that when the, when the ark leaves Shiloh, so when it leaves Shiloh on its way down uh, to Ebenezer, it's called the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And now... It's just the ark of God. It's just the ark of God. It's lost all of its splendor, all of its majesty, all of its holiness, all of its specialness, all of its glory. Now it's just the ark of God. Now when Eli hears this, verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate And his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. When the man just mentions the ark, I don't don't think that this man even got out that the ark had been captured, right? He says, okay, it's pretty bad, Eli, and and I'm going to give you the, the slightly bad news first. We're on the run. Okay, but, but it's, it's worse. Um, a lot of people are dead. Um, and, and it's worse, your, your, your two sons are, are, are dead. And, uh, and the ark, and Eli couldn't even take it anymore. Once he heard mentioned the ark, uh, this fat old man kind of falls back uh, in his seat um, and hits the ground and breaks his neck and dies. Man, that's just a terrible way to go out. It's a terrible way to go out. But now Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas are dead. The priests, not only the high priest, but his two sons, sort of the next in succession, the leaders of Israel are dead. The Ark of the Covenant of God is captured by the Philistines. Pagans have it now. They're throwing a big party. We've all been defeated in this terrible, terrible battle. Things could not get any worse. 
Now we're, we're kind of coming to the close of our chapter, and we're going to see what's really kind of happening wrapped up in the words of a dying woman. Verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So Phineas's wife is pregnant, right? She's probably eight or nine months. She's probably completely determined. And so what happens is she hears, first of all, that the ark has been captured. Because that's what everyone's talking about. Every, oh my gosh, the ark has been captured. Oh my gosh. And if that's not bad enough, uh, the high priest, uh, the leader of Israel, is lying dead in the street. Your father-in-law, he's dead. What, my father-in-law is dead? Yeah, and, and your husband who carried the ark in, he died carrying the ark. Well, all of this anxiety, all of this shock, all of this pressure sends her into labor. And she bows over in pain uh, and starts to give birth. She starts to give birth to her kid. Uh, I can imagine that, that such terrible news would do something like that. But verse 20 says, And about the time of her death, the woman attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. So she's dying giving childbirth. She's dying in childbirth. She's bearing her son. She The... The son comes out, uh, the, the midwife clips the umbilical cord and says to the woman, don't be afraid, uh, it's pretty much the last thing she's ever going to hear and says, your, your son's alive, you've born a son. Don't be afraid, you, you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She did not answer or pay attention. Imagine with me, for a moment, especially you ladies. For us guys, it's kind of lost on us, okay? But you women um, who will one day be mothers and, um, you know, one of you who is a mother, and uh, imagine you're there in the delivery room and your baby is just born and you don't care. Imagine what terrible things must have happened for you not to care about the birth of your child. She doesn't even answer or pay attention. She says, don't worry, you, 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 you have a son, he's alive. And she doesn't even care. Why? Why, does she, why doesn't she care? What could possibly going on that would cause a mother not to care about the birth of her son? Verse 21 and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. She names her child Ichabod, which means no glory. No glory. The glory of, of God has departed from Israel. She names her son this as forever a, a, a reminder, forever a testament to all of the children of Israel as long as this child lives as a reminder that God's not there anymore. This is sort of like uh, the words of, of John Lennon, you know, God's dead. That's in a sense what this woman is sort of saying, but rather than saying God's dead, she's just kind of saying, God's gone. Okay, where's the glory? Where's the glory? There's no glory in Israel anymore. The ark is gone, the high priest is gone, and his sons are both dead. Where's the glory? There's no glory. It's interesting, uh, another important little kind of nuance that, that's happening here. Ichabod, Ich. Kabod. Kabod means glory. Kabod means glory. It also means weight. Weight. And it's the same word used to describe Eli. When it says there uh, at the end of verse 18 uh, that Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died 
for the man was old and heavy. That word heavy is the same word that kabod. It's the same word, okay? So it's sort of this woman saying there's no glory. There's no glory. She says, where's the glory of God? Where's the kabod? It's in the street lying on the ground. Dead. There's no glory. Listen, this is a huge tragedy. This is a depressing time for the children of Israel. Literally everything that could go wrong was going wrong. So what does that have to do with us today? Christian, brother, sister, listen. What do you hold as weighty? What do you hold as important? What's valuable to you? Is it being near God? Is it spending time with Him? Is it being close to Him? Is it listening to His Word? Is it obeying His Word? Or is it just what you can get out of Him? The children of Israel only wanted from God what they could get out of him, whatever benefits, whatever blessings they could get from God, but they had no desire to obey him. They had no desire to follow after him. They had no desire to be near him. And so as a result, God brought them to complete calamity. God basically said, you know, I've been protecting you from all this, but if you, if you don't want anything to do with me, fine. And he sort of let go and, and took a step back. And now the, Israel are, the children of Israel are in complete calamity and devastation because they wanted nothing to do with God, only what he could give them. Listen, Christian, if you're sitting in here tonight and you can identify that and you can say, you know what, if I'm honest with myself, I care more about what God can give me. Blessing, peace, hope. heaven, forgiveness, freedom. If you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, you know what, I I can identify with that. I care so much about what God can give me. In fact, I care more about what God can give me than I care about God himself. Listen, Christian, this stands as a warning for us. This stands as a warning for us. And so my question for you, as we sort of wrap this chapter up, is the question that this dying woman had to say, her her last words, so to speak, where's the glory? Where's the glory in your life? What do you glory in? Success, victory, blessings, climbing the corporate ladder, Uh, doing well in school, getting into that perfect college, uh, getting that perfect degree, having that great career, having a perfect or seemingly perfect family uh, with a two-story suburban home with a white picket fence and a golden retriever, with a sports car in the driveway and and a boat down at the docks. Where's the glory in your life? What do you glory in? Where's the glory? And let me ask you, Christian, in your life, has the glory of God departed from your life? Has the glory of God long left? And have you replaced that with whatever else? Listen, the good news is, is that This isn't like the end of the story. And in a few weeks, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant be taken back by the children of Israel. And it comes back into the house of the Lord for the right reasons. Listen, Christian, if you're here tonight and the glory of God has departed from your heart, it's departed from your life, you don't give a rip about God, you don't give a rip about him, only what he can give you, what you can get out of him, 
or, or maybe it's not even that, and you're, you're sitting here tonight, and you glory in the world. Listen, if the glory of God has departed from your life, it's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late to love God, to run back to Him, to draw near to Him. It's not too late to desire to obey Him, to sit at His feet, to be close to Him. It's not too late to abide in Christ. It's not too late to live for Him. It's not too late to have the glory of God restored to your life. The joy of His salvation restored to your heart. It's not too late. But if that's, here tonight, if that's you here tonight, I just want to take a couple of minutes. I'm just going to close in prayer. And I just want you to spend, not even a couple minutes, I just want you to spend 30 seconds, just wherever you're at in your seat, just really talking to the Lord about this. I encourage you to, to pray with your mouth, to pray out loud. Not, not so loud that the person next to you can hear you, but so loud that you can hear yourself, uh, that you're not just sitting there in your own head kind of thinking about Del Taco or Candyland, okay? But really praying to God and really asking him to search your heart, asking him to show you what it is that you glory in. if it's him or if it's something else. So I encourage you to, to spend just 30 seconds really asking God, well, what do you glory in? And I encourage you, if it's not God, ask him to just come back. God, I just pray for all of us that we would truly be honest with ourselves, and that we would be honest with you, God, because it's so easy for us to just replace you with so many other worthless things. It's so easy for us to be like Hophni and Phineas. Maybe we're not being so overt in our sin as they were, but it's easy for us to treat with contempt the things that, that you love and the things that you love for us. That we go to church to see people and to be seen. That we read our Bible to just check it off a list. That we pray just merely as a formality, as a, as a, as a piece of religion to hang on our mantle. It's so easy for us to be like Hophni and Phineas. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with you, to confess that sin to you, God. And I pray that you would replace everything in our, in our life that's not of you. That you'd strip it away and replace it with you. That you'd replace our desire for stuff, for success, with a desire for your word. That we'd replace our desire for, for fame, uh, for notoriety, with a desire to please you alone. To make you proud that you'd replace our, our, our passions and our, our hearts for, for just wicked and worldly things with a passion and a desire to spend time with you in prayer. And as we just spend just these next few seconds pouring out our hearts to you, I pray that it would be a sweet offering to you. Please just give us the, the words to pray. Why don't you just spend some, some time with the Lord now, just you and him. Do you hear us, Lord? Do you hear us? We're crying out to you. to be real in our lives, to be everything to us. I pray that you would give every one of us a deep hunger for your word and a thirst for righteousness.
to just live obedient to you, to live our lives desiring to make you proud. We need your help. Please help us, Lord. Please hear us. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sin. For shedding his blood so that we could boldly walk into your presence, into your throne room. That we could even come to you, that we could, that we could say these things. Thank you for your son. please help us to to put your presence back in the center of our life. That we would glory in this. That we know you, the only true God. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine on each and every one of you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you this week and give you peace.